The following message was preached at Gospel City Church, a church that seeks to cast a gospel net for the people of Kuala Lumpur. Good morning, everybody. Um, my name is Masmo, and I'm one of the others here, and this is maybe a little too high. And yes, uh, we would love to uh, send our kids to Sunday school. So if you're here and your kids and, or your kid, send them or go to Sunday school. Alright, so again, uh, we are uh, in a series uh, in the, through the book of Matthew uh, called uh, Promises Fulfilled. Uh, a king for all peoples, and as we just read, uh, we are in chapter 18 today. Uh, what we've been doing throughout the series is we've been taking a very uh, a top view um, over the uh, book of Matthew. We've been taking large segments of scripture to be able to really understand the connectedness of the whole book. We will see big themes that are being put forward uh, to the book. And today, again, we have a larger segment going through all of chapter 18. Um, last week, we heard about Peter confessing Jesus as Christ and Jesus foretelling his death and resurrection twice. Uh, Jesus also mentioned um, that he will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In today's passage, uh, Jesus responds to the question of who is the greatest in heaven? And as he responds to that, uh, he gives us a picture of how a kingdom community looks like. Uh, specifically a picture of how we as members of the church are supposed to respond to or deal with sin. In essence, what it means to be a redemptive community. So before we start looking at the five points I have for us today, uh, let me ask you these questions. If you reflect over the last month or the last year, who has sinned against you? I want you to keep that in mind as we're as we're thinking through the passage today. Who has hurt you? Who owes you? Who neglected you? Who abandoned you? Caused you pain or uh, made you bitter? Who upset you or angered you or betrayed you? Because today we will look at how we should respond to someone who has sinned against us. Today we will look at what it means to be a redemptive community. So let me pray, and let's get into it after that. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us this morning to look at your word, understand your word, and then live out your word. Father, would you help me as I proclaim your word, and would you help me to be clear? And Father, may Jesus be lifted up. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So as we look at the text and as we look at what it means to be a redemptive community, there are five things we want to look at this morning. And the five things are that as a redemptive community, we need to depend, we need to protect, we need to pursue, we need to engage, and we need to forgive. Let me say that again. We need to depend, verses 1 through 5. We need to protect, verses 6 through 9. We need to pursue, verses 10 through 14. We need to engage, verses 15 through 20. And we need to forgive, verses 21 to 35. Let's look at the first one, we depend. 
After some significant events in the last chapter, mostly or often involving Peter, uh, such as the uh, confession of Christ as the Son of God and the Christ transfiguration, um, the disciples came to Jesus and asked him this question, uh, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, they wanted to know how one could be the best. And uh, Jesus replied in this way, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, in response to this, is saying that greatness is not defined by one's ability to perform, but a posture of dependence to be like a child. He's saying that ability is not the marker, but humility is. Because the question that was actually asked to an extent was a, was a status question. How do we become a person of authority and status? And Jesus' answer is saying it's not about taking on the highest position, but recognizing that you are the lowest. It's not just being a child like you're being innocent and humble and receptive and, and trustful like a child, but to accept oneself as the lowest end of the social scale. Someone who can't fend for himself but depends on their parents, particularly in this case, your father in heaven. Now, in, in, in doing this, he's giving us a posture, a, a, a kingdom mindset, that we should not think of ourselves as people who are able to achieve great things because entering the kingdom of heaven is not about the ability to do great things, but the ability to understand that we can't do anything. Having the humility to say, apart from God, I can do nothing. And adding verse 5 into the mix, which says, whoever receives a child in my name receives me, shows that it's not just about being lowly, but also about receiving the lowly. So it's not just about understanding that you are at bottom rank, but also receiving those at bottom rank. Now, of course, that does not mean that we should not strive to be successful at work or, or try to chase big goals or accomplish tasks. It just talks about how we perceive ourselves, especially in a spiritual and moral sense. It gives us a, a posture on how we engage with people, particularly when we have a conflict or trying to resolve sin. This is very crucial as we are thinking through what it means to be a redemptive community, particularly in dealing with sin in the local church, because it starts with a posture of saying, I don't have any moral high ground that I'm coming into this conversation. I'm, I'm, I'm not better than others. I'm, I'm, I'm like a child. I'm, I'm dependent. I need my father. I'm, I'm not of a high status. I'm of a lowly status. And this enters the conversation very differently than becoming, I'm, I'm the best. I've achieved great things, and I'm coming here to resolve these things. When so you're coming from a lowly state into a conversation. Just like anyone else, my identity, my value is insignificant. I'm nothing, I'm little, I'm small, I'm dependent. I too am needy. Because greatness is not about my ability to perform, but about my ability to comprehend that I am dependent on my Father. That I'm in need of my Father, and I myself have no value. Now, with that recognition that we are dependent, lowly and broken, people who can't really help themselves, well, there comes maybe a little bit of a danger um, that we might not take this serious. Let me explain, because if you're thinking that, that I'm just a broken, lowly, little person 
where I just need my father, and, 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 and that's, that, that, that's the position I'm in. Then, then you might think that, well, since I know I might just throw a pity party about my sin, and I'll get other people to come together and throw a pity party together, and we will we, we say we are lowly and broken people. And um, That's not what Jesus is trying to say here. He's just trying to share with you that you are from a lowly position, but he's saying that you must take sin serious. He does not leave room for you not to take serious, especially in the next couple of verses, what he says. So yes, we are supposed to have a humble dependence, but we also need to protect ourselves from sin. And that's the second point. We need to protect ourselves. And there are two ways that we need to protect ourselves from sin. One way is to protect others from our sin so that we do not stumble them. And the second thing is to cut off anything that will cause us to sin. Jesus said that if anyone causes a believer to sin, it would be better for them to have a millstone tied around their neck and be thrown into the sea. Jesus was saying it's better for you to drown yourself than cause somebody else to sin. This is extreme language. He's very serious about it. And the number one way that we cause others to sin, usually, is unrepentant sin in our own lives. If we do not repent of our sins and continue in sin, our examples could lead others to sin. Younger, less mature Christians may see our sinful behavior and think, it's okay to live that way. Paul, in the book of Corinthians, says it, that little leaven leavens the whole lump, but he means that a little bit of sin can work itself throughout the whole world, throughout the whole body. Because when we see sin and don't address it, we are calling sin not sin. And that's why in the response to who is the greatest, Jesus says, well, humble yourself because pride usually leads to unrepentance. Uh, pride is often referred to as the deadliest sin because it keeps us from repenting. A posture of repentance is important because it leads to change in our lives and protects others from sinning like we do. But think about the biggest stumbling block to Christianity in general. For most people, it is prominent Christians who sin. It is leaders and pastors who disappoint and are unrepentant. But you know, what is true of those public figures is also true for us in our private lives. Our personal pursuit of holiness makes our faith, our community, our church attractive, and our failure in this pursuit stumbles others. While we may not be perfect, we should strive for holiness and repentance. Now the best way to not stumble others is the second part that Jesus addresses. Jesus talks about taking extreme measures to cut off all possible abilities for us to be tempted to sin. He says that if your foot causes us to sin, you should cut it off. Um, cutting off sin is a, is a serious, important, or, or and difficult and, and strong measure. Um, cutting off things could be something like cutting off your devices if they're causing you to sin. Or, or cutting off substances. You know, or maybe locking your fridge. <laughs> I think I need to lock that fridge when I'm doing seven friends. <laughs> Um, but anyways, what we need to do, we, we need to do extreme things to be able to cut away any possibility. And in the language of Jesus, uh, he says we are supposed to go through extreme measures. The purity 
and holiness of the individual and the church brings glory to God. And we are to pursue His glory with strong convictions. So we must protect ourselves from sinning and we must protect others from sinning. Okay, so we, we depend, we come in with a, 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 a humble attitude, recognize that we have no moral high ground, but we also take sin serious by protecting others from our sin and protecting ourselves from sin. But we also, thirdly, we also pursue. Now with all this talk of, of cutting off and throwing away and, and getting rid of, it might seem that we are to take sinners and just, just get rid of them. Because the language is cut off. However, that's not what Jesus is saying here either. In the parable of the lost sheep, Jesus teaches us that the posture of how we as a church deal with people who have sinned is not a posture of cutting away people, but a posture of pursuing them so they may be restored. In this parable, Jesus teaches that we should not despise one of those little ones, you know, the, the lowly, the broken, the sinful, the helpless, who so desperately need a savior. He talks, if someone has a hundred sheep and one strays, he will go and pursue that one, look for it, find it, and rejoice over it even more than the ninety-nine who never went astray. Here Jesus is talking about a stray sheep. The lostness or, or, or straying in a spiritual sense here for us is related to sin. Either someone is going currently going down a pathway of sin or, or straying in the path of holiness. Or in the, they're not walking the light that they're supposed to walk in. Or maybe they're lost and they never saw the light and do not know the Father and are unrepentant sinners. So the lostness and the straying has to do with, with, with not being confused, but just being unrepentant and not walking in holiness. You're sinning. So someone is not living in the light that can be identified as a Christian, someone who is, maybe I'm not a big fan of the word, but maybe we use backsliding. Or, or uh, someone who's going through or uh, being stumbled in temptation, somebody who's struggling with sin. And the posture that we take as a church, as Christian, is that we should pursue that person. We go towards that person. James in uh, chapter 5, verse 19 to 20 says that if anyone among you wanders from the truth and that someone brings him back, so I will know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sin. So if we know somebody who is sinning, even if that person has sinned against us, the posture we should take is one of pursuing that person, going after them. That means that the effort of the church should be focused on the strain person. The question, of course, might arise, what about the 99 who have been faithfully living in the light and doing all the work and, and doing well? Why is Jesus saying that he will rejoice more over that one person than over the 99 who have been faithful? Well, the fact is, the ones who are not strained, well, you're part of the team. You, you, you're part of the camp. You, you're at the party. So we look at the person who's not at the party. So we, we were trying to look at that person and trying to bring that person in together. If someone who was strained returns to the church to holiness and to pursue God's design for their life again, we should rejoice over that. Our Father in Heaven finds joy in recovery and we all should share in that joy. 
We get to share in their joy, to pursue somebody and see them recover. We are part of their team. It doesn't mean that the 99 are not loved equally or not cherished, but we should be about our father's business. And our father's business is about finding his stray sheep. Because once you were lost, once you were found, and others, including angels, rejoiced over that fact. So we should rejoice. And we see others who are lost and being found, we should join in the party and celebrate. The stance of the church is one of pursuing the stray sheep, not cutting them off. Not waiting for them to return, but running after them. So in dealing with sin in the local church, we, we depend, we protect, we pursue, next we engage. So when we pursue a person, we don't just say, hey, uh, I miss you, come back. Uh, it's, it's not just, even though it is part of our relationship with them, but we are deeply concerned about their relationship with God. So we engage the person with their sin. Now, I particularly used the word engage rather than confront, because often we say, hey, we need to go and confront this person with their sin. But if you do a, a, a search of the word confront in the New Testament, um, you will not find that word. It doesn't exist in the New Testament. Now, of course, somebody's saying, of course, because it was written not in English, uh, but in, in, in Greek. But um, faithful translators chose not to use the word confront. They chose to use other words. Now, the strongest one of those words probably rebuke. That's probably the strongest one. But the difference between confront and rebuke is rebuke is teaching, it's telling. Well, confront usually means to arm up. You're trying to win a war. This is, this is not what Scripture is saying. Scripture is saying disarm. Tell them the truth. Help them to redeem them, pursue them, and bring them back. By showing them their sin, of course, rebuke is there and teaching them its own them. But the hope is reconciliation. The hope is coming back together, not winning a war. Now, if you look at this passage in Matthew 18, 15-20, it really shows us how we are supposed to engage. And, and this, this process is a very gentle process. It's a gentle process of how we restore a brother and sister. And Galatians 6.1 says, Restore a brother in all gentleness. And the process in itself, the way it's defined, is a gentle process. Now, I remember, um, um, years back, we, we had somebody, I'm trying to be a bit cryptic, to not say too much, in our church, who, uh, uh, a young man who wanted to join our church, and uh, he uh, wanted to lead the worship team as well, and uh, uh, my mom, Chris, and I, we were like, okay, who's this young man, and uh, we thought of engaging that person, and uh, finding out that his parents were not very happy about us uh, joining the church, so we thought we'd go into something very gentle. And we took that young man into a side room after church and just asked him some questions about him and his family. And uh, we thought we were being gentle. But if you think about it on the backside, you know, a, 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 a somebody who's below 20, three elders of the church, of the church, take you in the side room. <laughs> and you know, the, the odd thing was there wasn't a chair, there was just one chair there, so we asked him to sit down. Because <laughs> we were being polite, thinking, hey, you know, 
three elders sitting there and asking him some questions. Why is he sitting there? That wasn't gentle. And, and I tell you, we, we were trying to be gentle, but I'm saying that process matters in gentleness. It's not just tone, but it's what you do that matters. And, and, and here we, we, we have a gentle process before us. It says here, if a brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So the process begins like this. You go yourself, and if the person repents, and you tell them about the sin, and the person agrees, yes, I have made a mistake, and repents, and listens, and agrees, then it's done. Process over. And you have won a brother, or a sister. Now if the person is still unrepentant and does not listen, it says, take one or two along with you, that every charge may be established by evidence of two or three witnesses. God's process of reconciliation and conflict resolution is one that's fair. The reality is when, when two people argue or two people have a conflict, um, often both people think that they're right. So even if you feel offended and think the other person owes you an apology, you might be the person who's wrong. So if you have a charge against your brother and a person said unrepentant, you go to them and mention uh, what you've done wrong and, uh, and maybe you are also at fault, but to, to um, resolve this, it's good to bring maybe two or three others along as the next step. Because maybe they are able to see, well, hey, if your person is wrong, you are wrong. So they are able to help verify who's at fault. It says here to establish evidence to verify. Having outsiders or others speak in the same situation is really helpful in this next step of the process. And then, after that, the person is still unrepentant. After you've brought two or three witnesses, and the person is still unrepentant, it says he attended to the church. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let it be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So, there's a few things to say about that. The process here is first telling us that it goes from private to public. It begins with a private confrontation or engagement, and then it moves public. And so, with the idea, we are establishing uh, people as not just a, and getting more people involved, it's not just about, and it's, we are making sure it's not just a personal opinion of two or three, but the whole church actually agrees that the person is strained and unrepentant. Now you might say, wow, that's like taking uh, or airing people's dirty laundry in, in, in public. You know, some person is sitting and now you're, you're telling everybody, but uh, why are you making somebody's personal life a, a, a public effect? This could be very shameful. But you will notice something about this process. It is it is the unrepentant sin that is taking it from private to public. The person has time and opportunity to repent. So it's unrepentant sin that leads the movement from private to public. And the hope is for the person to feel godly pressure that helps the person to repent and move from darkness and be brought into light. And let me emphasize this again. This is a slow process. Please don't think about it this way, that today I go and tell Andy, hey, I have a problem with you, he doesn't listen. Tomorrow I go take my money, Chris, and uh, uh, then Andy still doesn't listen, and then on Sunday we go tell the whole church. 
right? It, 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 it's, it, it's, not, it's not that a quick process. We need to give people time because repentance takes time. So just to give you an idea, this is just me pulling a number out here. It might take up to a year in that process. Just to give you more of a time frame uh, rather than a few weeks. Now, of course, it depends on severity of sin and counsel and all these matters, but, but just to emphasize, it's a slow, slow process. It's a gentle process. It's slow because we want to win the brother or sister back to Christ. And one needs to give people time to think and reflect and repent. And the other thing that's to note is that it's ultimately brought to the church. It's not the elders that decide. It's the church that decides. Now it's under the counsel and guidance of the leaders and the elders of the church. But it's brought to the church, to the members of the church, who then make decisions. However, it doesn't mean that we do it here on a public Sunday. It means it's probably brought to a members' meeting of the church, or our covenant partner meetings here at Gospel City Church. And the idea is not to shame that person, but to inform the church there's somebody who's not living in the light of what it means to be a Christian. And we do not make decisions based on personal preference or, or in isolation, but rather as a community that truly cares for all its members and ensures not to stumble those by calling sin not sin. One of the ways that we will practice this in Gospel City Church is that if somebody, after going through this entire process and is still unrepentant, we ask them not to partake in the Lord's Supper. This is because the Lord's Supper is the weekly affirmation that we believe somebody is walking in faith and that they have good standing with Gospel City Church. Now, if we can't affirm that somebody is living in life, what it means to be in life, what it means to be a Christian, at this juncture, the person might be straying or unrepentant, we can't dispense the elements to that person and affirm that person in the very moment. The text says, what does it mean? It says here, treat them like a, 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 like a Gentile or a text collector as well. What does that mean? Well, it means what I just explained. It means that we do not treat that person as if they are a member of this church. It doesn't mean that a person cannot attend our corporate worship service or cannot attend our small groups. Because we want those who have not confessed faith uh, to come to church and be part of the church and hear the gospel being proclaimed, attend small groups and learn about Jesus and hope that they will turn and repent and put their faith in Jesus. We, we, we have people all the time here who have not put their faith in Jesus. So, and that's what's referred to here as Gentile text collector. So in a way, if there's a member who suddenly strays and is put on church discipline, we still want them to participate in the the gospel and repent and come back as well. Now, there might be particular extreme situations where somebody's behavior on a regular Sunday would be in danger to the church. Like they're abusive, or they're, they're a predator, or they're being regularly intentionally divisive. Um, maybe then the church will ask the person not to attend on, on a Sunday on those rare situations. But even in those cases, the person is asked not to attend. Uh, the church will still go out and try to engage that person, pursue that person, and hope that that person will repent and return. And we would rejoice together with that happens. Now that's the process. But we also have to deal with verses 18 to 20. Uh, verse 18 to 20 says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now this is something that we've heard before in Peter's confession of Jesus being Christ. In one sense, 
we can say that both time space mentions about the binding and the loosening, whatever we done on Earth, what we done in Heaven, uh, could possibly be two bookends. Uh, one describing the front door of the church, and the other one maybe possibly describing the back door of the church. Uh, how do you enter the kingdom of heaven? How do you be part of the local church? Well, you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord. Recognize that He is the Son of God. Um, and what causes you to be removed from the church? Well, persistent, unrepentant sin. In both those cases is where these phrases are being mentioned. And the reality is that the church regularly makes assessment about these two things. We make assessment of whether we think somebody is a Christian, if somebody is, has confessed Jesus and can be part of this local church, and if somebody is an unrepentant sinner. We make judgments and assessments on this regularly. And in this context, we have to make sure we don't misunderstand. It's not that we decide on somebody's salvation. We, our decision doesn't make somebody saved or not saved. But rather, the local church assesses it. And we make that decision all the time. When somebody comes forward in the gospel city church and, and shares their testimony, we ask the covenant partners to stand up and, and raise their hand to affirm that person to covenant partnership. <laughs> That's an assessment that we're doing and whether the person is saved or not. In the same way, we would go to church discipline and everybody says, well, we think that person is unrepentant. We are making assessment that we're not thinking that a person is walking in light of what it means to be a Christian. And we baptize somebody, and we allow people to membership. We make that assessment. When we move somebody from the Lord's Supper, we make that assessment. And more often than not, when two or three or a church comes together to assess this fruit of somebody's life, um, to see whether somebody is living faithful Christian, a faithful Christian life, whether a person really believes in and walks in a way of what it means to be a Christian and puts their faith in Jesus, after careful assessment over time, over a process, with godly people, with godly leadership, that assessment is most often true. More often than not, it is true. And you can see here in this text, that we as a church have been given the responsibility to make this assessment. We have been given the authority under Jesus to do so, but not just that, we also have been given His presence in the decision-making process. We're not making it instead of Jesus, but with Him, through how the Holy Spirit in us, in His, His presence is with us as we are thinking through making these assessments. And this gives us comfort. Because these aren't easy decisions. These decisions at times can be very difficult, and painful, and grievous. Now this also teaches us that the Christian life and the local church are so bound together that your participation in and through the local church is a significant indication of your salvation. Again, not, it's not what makes you a Christian, but it's an indication, it's a marker. That the or in ordinary circumstances, the Christian life does not exist outside the local church. Now, as a summary, you could say that this process that we have been defining, which is also called church discipline, the process that we're discussing, in a way, is a staging of a dramatic play 
to outplay with careful and serious intention attention a play that aims to display in the present what seems to be truth of the eternal. So that person, if we're asking the person not to partake of the Lord's Supper, we're, we're cutting that person off per se of the local church in that way, we're hoping that the person might feel the weight of sin and pressure so that he or she will make changes to his or her life so that this will not become a truth of the eternity. So we are displaying something in the present and hope that it will not be the truth for eternity. So after Jesus mentions these things, Peter comes to him and says, Well, Lord, how often do I do this? How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Many as seven times? And Jesus said, No, not seven times. Seventy-seven times. Seventy-seven times, but seventy-seven times. So Peter realizes that this is a gracious pursuit of a sinning person. And he recognizes the difficulty involved in this. And when he says, how often do I have to do it with somebody? Jesus plainly says, an infinite amount of times. That's what he's saying. An infinite amount. Over and over and over again. And this then brings us to our last point. So we have to repent. We have to be lowly and humble. We have to protect people from sin. And that's, that's part of the process here. We're protecting people not be stumbled by actually calling out the sinner, asking them to repent, showing the church that we believe that this is sin, we're protecting and not stumbling people. We also protect by pursuing personal holiness and repenting in our own lives. We, we pursue the sinner, but we don't just pursue the sinner, hey, come back, but we pursue them to engage them with their sin so they might reconcile with the hope for the last point. They will lead to forgiveness. So what Jesus does, he tells the parable of the unforgiven servant. And in this parable, we learn two things. Actually, we learn a lot of things about forgiveness, but I can only focus on two things uh, today. And we, we learn about two things that are vital in being a redemptive community. Firstly, that forgiveness is costly. And secondly, that forgiveness is necessary. So Jesus responds to Peter's question with a parable, and the parable talks about the kingdom of heaven. So it's giving us an insight on how the kingdom of heaven functions, and therefore how we as a redemptive community are supposed to function. It says this, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay his master, ordered him to be sold and um, with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him his debt. Now, just based on calculation, uh, what a talent was, was about 20 years worth of wage. Um, now, if you go with the roughly the minimum wage, I, I think they've changed it, but I think it was around 1,200 minimum wage. Um, so one talent would be about 288,000 ringgit. 
just put it into it. So um, 10,000 talents will be about 2.8 billion. Right? Just, just to, to see what kind of money you're talking about here. So first of all, it tells us that there's somebody who was brought to the king who owed 2.8 billion. Now, this person was probably not a shoe publisher. Right? This is probably somebody who had a very high position, maybe a civil servant, a governor, somebody in high position able to make this kind of debt. Now, we have no idea how that person spent the money, maybe buying his wife too many Hermes bags, or you know, throwing celebrity parties on yachts, or, or maybe he took his money and just donated it to a prime minister in another country. But um, the, 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 the story doesn't tell us exactly um, how the debt was created. Um, but what we do know is that he could not pay his master. And the master, out of pity, forgave the servant. The master was willing to bear the cost of having his debt paid, not paid, and instead he paid it by not receiving it back. So you see, the first thing you learn that forgiveness is always costly. Because when somebody sins against another person, a debt is created. And somebody has to pay the debt. Now you have a choice. You can either Make payments or take payments? Forgiveness is making the payment. It is bearing the cost. And it's not just bearing the cost once, but it's often being willing to bear the cost over and over and over again. Let me give you a bit more of an extreme example. And the reason I give this extreme example is exactly what Jesus will talk about next chapter. We'll hear about it next week. Now imagine a married couple and somebody commits adultery. Let's say a man commits adultery. And after going through this process, the couple reconciles. They go through counseling and everything is okay. The wife forgives and she pays the debt. She's willing to bear the cost of reconciliation and forgiveness. The husband repents as well, so he's truly sorry. And we think this is the end of the story. But that's not true, especially when it comes to adultery. Because maybe she knows the lady who he committed adultery with. And maybe a year later she goes down to the supermarket and she sees that lady. Guess what's going to happen? Emotions are going to come. She's going to see that lady, she's going to feel again what she felt the first time when she found out her husband to say. Now she's already reconciled with her husband. She's already forgiven him, but at that very moment she has to make a choice again. Is she going to make a payment or take a payment? Is she going to go home and say, hey, I saw you, see what you've done? Or is she going to forgive again? Forgiveness, just like repentance, is a process. And true forgiveness is the willingness to make a payment over and over and over again. But the hard part about this passage, not just that it's costly, but that it's necessary. It's something that we need to necessarily do. It says here, when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me. 
and I will pay you. He refused and meant to put him in prison until he should pay his debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have mercy on the fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailer until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now based on my calculations, the debt owed here is just about 6,000 ringgit. Clearly very insignificant compared to 2.88 billion. And that's the first shocking factor. That the person who has been forgiven so greatly but was not able to forgive that person. But not just that. How he responded to the person who owed him? He choked him. He went there and grabbed the person by the neck. And he choked that person. And the hardness of heart is made clear here. In fact, it's so clear that onlookers were so shocked about it. They were distressed, it says, that they had to go and go and tell the master. And all of us are probably equally distressed and are shocked by this behavior, right? We say, hey, somebody's giving you 2.88 billion, you can't even give somebody 6,000, that's crazy. It's everybody's expectation, everybody. I don't know anybody who does not have this expectation reading the story. It's everybody's expectation, it's normative. That if you have received great mercy, you should have the capacity to give little mercy. That if you have received great forgiveness, you should have the capacity to give little mercy. Uh, forgiveness. And that's exactly what the passage says here at the very end. You wicked servant. I forgave you all the debt, but you pleaded with me, you pleaded me. Should you not have mercy on your fellow servant, as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to jailers until he should pay his debt. Reciprocal mercy and forgiveness is nominative. It is expected that forgiveness is given forward. That if you have received it, you will receive it, you, 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 you will pay forward to somebody else. It is, it is necessary because it's an indication that you understand how much you have been forgiven. And because we know it's necessary and normative, the punishment that happens is adequate. Because we know it's an unpayable sum, so he says, you come out of jail, and you pay the he's never coming out of jail. That's what it's saying. Dear Carson says this way, Jesus sees no incongruity in the actions of a heavenly father who forgives so bountifully and punishes so ruthlessly, and neither should we. Indeed, it is precisely because he is a God of such compassion and mercy that he cannot possibly accept as his those devoid of compassion and mercy. This is not to say that the king's compassion can be earned, far from it. The servant is granted freedom only by the virtue of the king's forgiveness. Those who are forgiven must forgive, lest they show themselves incapable of receiving. 
Let me say it differently. The king has set the pattern of the kingdom. The king has set the pattern by lavishing his great mercy and forgiveness. Forgiveness is the way the kingdom operates. Forgiveness is the modus operandi of the kingdom. If the king by example sets the patterns, the kingdom runs this way. So subjects of the kingdom who don't follow the pattern have no place in the kingdom. It's a sign that they're not part of the kingdom. Why? Because it shows that their hearts were not changed by the mercy of the king. Now you might be saying here, well, of course, if I would have been forgiven greatly, in comparison, I would be willing to forgive the little people, the little sins, the people sins against me. But I'm a great sinner, and the person has sinned greatly against me. You know, all I've done is lie at one time, but that person robbed me or something. I've not done something really bad. I don't owe 2.88 billion. I owe 5 ringgit. Well, we must recognize one thing. That great debt is not just dependent on the severity of the sin, but it's also dependent on the person against whom we have sinned. Let me illustrate that. If I, if I step down stage now and slap my arm, it's a sin. He's an elephant chap, so probably, you know, Andy and, and Chris will grab me and take me outside and ask me to repent and say sorry. And if I don't, say maybe, hey, you need to think about this before you come back to church uh, uh, next time. You do that. But when, I, when you bring me down, and suddenly I see a police officer, and I go slap the police officer. Well, it's not about me going and thinking about it until I repent. It's about me going to lock up. <laughs> right? Well, if I... Then go in front of a judge, and guess what? I think I need to go slap the judge. <laughs> well, it's not about lockup anymore, it's about going to jail for a couple of weeks. And if I decide to go and try to slap the practice of Malaysia, it's going to jail for a decade. If I would try to go and slap Joe Biden, my hand wouldn't even get close to his cheek and I'll get shot. <laughs> In all these cases, in all these incidents, by sin, the action was the same. I was helping a man, but the cost of my sin was far greater depending on who I sinned against. Regardless of how big or small our sins are, we always sin against God. God, who is of infinite worth, of infinite value. The smallest sin in rebellion against God is far greater than 10,000 talents far greater than 2.88 billion. You will never be able to pay it back. It's unpayable for you. But in His mercy, God Himself came down to pay the price. In the person of Jesus, He humbled Himself and became a man because He looked at you with great compassion and mercy. He chose to suffer for you and He took on death for you. you see, we have been forgiven with an infinite amount. We have received an infinite amount of compassion. When we look at the cross, it never humbles us. It makes us recognize that we are lowly and dependent. It shows us that we have no place to be proud. But also, because Jesus rose again, 
we know that there's power to change. There's hope for me to change. There's hope for you to change. There's hope for others to change. So guess what? We can be patient. People can truly repent. People can change. So you can cut off that sin. They can cut off that sin. We are able to guard and protect ourselves and protect others from not causing them to stumble. Sin cost Jesus' death on the cross. So we can't take sin lightly. Because what is costly to God can't be cheap for us. But the cross also shows us that God didn't just leave us in our state when we went, when we went astray. He pursued us. He came to earth, and He didn't come to, to harshly confront us, but to gently restore us. He is gentle because He gives us time. Jesus engages us with His Word and His truth, and He gives us time to repent and believe. And when we put our faith in Him, He forgives. And to the degree that you are able to see how greatly you have been forgiven, to that degree you will be able to forgive others. When you're able to do that, well, you will depend on God. You will see the cost of sin. You will protect others from sin, yourself from sin. And you will go and pursue, and you will go and engage, and you will be able to forgive. Brothers and sisters, as a redemptive community, we depend, we protect, we pursue, we engage, and we forgive. And we can do it because Christ did it first. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we ask that you help us here at GCC become a redemptive community. Help us see how much you have forgiven us in Christ. Help us to pursue holiness. Help us guard the beauty and the sanctity and the holiness of this church. Help us pursue those who are straying, engage them in gentleness, so that they may repent, so that we can forgive. Help us become such a church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. We invite you to learn more about Gospel City Church at gospelcitychurch.my